1: Forcing myself to read my work out loud, I think, makes things tighter, ultimately. You can have 12 great lines of poetry, but if you read it out loud and it feels lateral, 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 you have to do some, you can figure out, oh, it's just these three lines. You don't need the 12.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn.
3: And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler.
2: Hi, Isaac. How are you?
3: I'm going to go with tired, tired.
2: Tired, yeah. that's how
3: I am tired. How are you?
2: Yeah, I feel the same way. It's been a weirdly long week, even though yeah. like, but not for like a really good reason.
3: Because <laughs> you did so much epic trick or treating.
2: I wish. I wish. Um, did you did you
3: do a costume? Any costumes going on?
2: Yeah, uh, my boyfriend and I went as I was Ricky Joop and he was Jean Jacket from Nope.
3: Awesome. Uh, my family went as Harry Potter characters uh, at my daughter's insistence so she was Harry Potter I was uh-huh. Snape so but I because I was Snape I just figured out that we should do Alan Rickman themes every year and like next year I could be oh, Alan Rickman and Die Hard yeah and she could be Bruce Willis and maybe Anne could be Nakatomi Tower I don't know. I was I a-
2: I know. about to say exactly that yeah yeah exactly um, all right so who did you talk to for this week's episode?
3: I talked to the wonderful poet Jay Hope Stein, and so that there's no confusion during the interview. She just goes by Jenny in everyday life. So, uh, but, but J. Hope Stein is her professional name, and uh-huh. uh, she is the author of a recent poetry collection on becoming a mother that's really wonderful titled Little Astronaut.
2: Oh, wow. Well, I cannot wait to hear your conversation. But before we get to that, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week?
3: There's a lot in the Slate Plus segment this week. We've been very generous with our Slate Plus uh, (laughs) uh, uh, listeners. You know, I I thought Little Astronaut is so conceptually unified. It is just about pregnancy and early parenting and marriage in the midst Hmm. of all that. So I just wanted to know what she did with all the ideas that weren't right for the book while she was writing the book. And that led to a really wide-reaching conversation about Greek myths, the ethics of writing about your family. You know, if you're not into poetry and you're kind of... um, intimidated by it where you might start all sorts of things like that so so there's a lot going on this week
2: well, that's fascinating. And Slate Plus members will hear that at the end of the episode. But if you are not a Slate Plus member, but want to hear that segment, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you will get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com workingplus to access all Slate's content and support our work. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with poet J-Hope Stein.
3: Jenny Stein, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm working to talk about your process.
1: Thanks for having me.
3: So as they say in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. You (laughs) are a poet. How did you come to poetry? Did you always love poetry? Did you have a kind of epiphanic moment when you discovered it or, or what?
1: Well, I did love poetry as a kid. But to be honest, like it wasn't until college that I started to really get into it. I had a friend named Benjamin Vardigan who was like, My friend in college, who was a poet already in college, he's a really good poet, and he introduced me to Charles Simic and the Beat Poets and got me really excited about poetry. Mm. So I, I really got inspired in college by my friends, but I didn't start writing until after college. And then I was writing pretty intensely, and then one day I threw all my poems out, in a garbage can on 23rd Street, and I got like a corporate job.
3: Wait, you literally threw them all out because you were like, well, I'm done with this life. I have to destroy my earlier work?
1: Uh, Yeah, poets are very dramatic. Yeah, yes, that's
3: (laughs) true. I've been told.
1: I was like, I have to make a living. I can't sit around and write poems all day. Um, I had a lot going on personally. So it took me a while to come back to poetry again.
3: And what caused you to reconnect with poetry?
1: I think meeting Mike was very influential because he – I met Mike when he was 25. My husband, Mike Berbiglia, who's the wonderful comic. Um, yes. And he was 25 years old when I met him, and he was just pursuing his dream, and I think that that was very influential. And I, I watched his work ethic and watched how he did everything and was pretty blown away. He would say – like I remember on one of our first dates he was like, I'm going to do a one-person show about sleepwalking. It's going to be called Sleepwalk With Me. And he just had, I was like, oh, okay. I know a lot of people who say they're going to do a lot of things. But then he got on stage like a week later and just put it up. Like He was just did it. Whatever he had, he just put it up. And that had a huge effect on me that you just have to do it. And it doesn't have to be done yet. To start, you have to just start doing it.
3: And and does that for you, I mean, obviously for him, that means he's getting up in front of an audience, just doing it, you know, like as yeah. a comic, you have to have an audience to develop your work. Uh, yeah. Do you do the same thing? Were you going to like poetry readings and open mics or whatever, or, or was just doing it a more <laughs> private affair?
1: I'm much more private than him. So I did not have an audience, nor did I share with really anybody for many years, but eventually I started doing poetry readings and then I started performing my poetry performing reading my poetry for 10 people at a time 20 people at a time and that was really good for me actually to hear my poetry out loud because I was just writing it and there was just another life to it and I think that I had originally thought, no, I'm not a performer, I'm not a reader, I'm a writer. But it does help my process every once in a while to hear what I've written out loud.
3: What do you learn from hearing it out loud? Because I read most of the things I write out loud before I turn them in, but not to other people, just to myself, just to like right. hear how the sentences feel or whatever. But I'm just wondering like what is opened up for you by, you know, hearing it out loud or feeling how it feels in your mouth or whatever.
1: Well, sometimes I forgot what I was saying until I hear it. Mm. Like I know what I, and I'm like, Oh, okay. And I sort of understand what I'm trying to do more. And that helps me continue. And the other thing is with poetry, everything is sound related. It's rhythm related. You could also see what you could strike away. That's already in the poem. Mm. You can have 12 great lines of poetry, But if you read it out loud and it feels lateral, 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 you have to do some, you can figure out, oh, it's just these three lines. You don't need the 12. And um, that's really helpful. I started recording my poems for Instagram. And that, I'm not like very big on social media or anything, but that's been really good for my process also. And I've edited quite a few poems in that way where I just start reading them for Instagram and then I'm like, oh, that could go, that could go, oh, that should be said better. And then by the time, let's say an hour later, I've completely revised the poems. So forcing myself to read my work out loud, I think makes things tighter ultimately.
3: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you were first learning to write poetry or exploring poetry as something you wanted to do, you know— I guess I'm wondering kind of how you learn how to do that. Is it by imitating other poets? Is that how you kind of started out? Or were you buying craft books?
1: I was definitely imitating a lot. So I think at first I wanted to be Charles Simic. Um, I was trying to write short prose pieces. And I wanted to be Friends Wright, who writes these really emotive short poems. And I think those are really good to start with because you can sort of write a few lines and sort of be like, oh, I wrote a poem and that that kind of thing and sort of try to get from A to B in just a few lines. But then I started writing really long form poetry. And I ended up really enjoying works like Descent of Allette by Alice Notley, which is a full length Mm -hmm. book of poetry, which is the poem is the whole, the whole book is the poem, and Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic. And so I'm very influenced ultimately, by books of poetry that work on a line level, but then also on a page level and then across the whole book so that it's sort of a journey. So that ended up being what I was most influenced by. But along the way, I think I imitated anyone that was reading at the time, you know, and, that, and that's really helpful just to learn different skills.
3: Um, What did that imitation look like? Were you very formal about it? Like, I am today going to write a Charles Simic poem, and that means X, Y, or Z? Or was it more like by osmosis, you start kind of, it comes out?
1: Sometimes I look at a poem and always have and said, I wish I could write a poem like this. And then I try to write a poem like that, and it's nothing like it. But in my mind, I think that's what I'm doing. And then other times it's literally, like, taking one line and saying, like, how can I take a line that works this way with sound and heart and meaning and apply it to what I'm writing about and really, like, spend, like, a whole day with a line and trying to imitate it but make it work for whatever I'm trying to work on. So it really depends. I mean, it could even just be a word. Like, I can just see a word and say I have to use this word somewhere. So... Mm. poets get kind of stuck on sounds and words and i've been known to do that
3: yeah i remember there was one of those that turned there's a few of those in the method where like i read them in a book and i was like oh i like that word i'm gonna have to find a place to shoehorn that word and the only one i can remember yeah. off the top of my head is "adumbration."
1: whoa which was That's like, you know, like criticisms
3: you. or yeah and i was like where is this gonna go and then there's i there's one chapter where i found it and i was like high-fiving myself around the uh the office um,
1: wait so you used it
3: I did. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I had a list of them, and then I would like make sure I had the definition correct, and then I would be like, if I find a place to use this word, I'll do it. And then it, and then it came up. I was very happy about it. Um,
1: I studied um, with Ilya Kaminsky, and he makes all of his students keep journals of words and phrases and things that they come upon when they're reading that they like, and you just mm-hmm. kind of keep a little journal. I don't do this anymore, but sometimes I'll grab things here and there and just write them down. But you just keep them and then they and then the osmosis starts to happen, I think. Yeah, totally. I don't ever look back at them, but they're in me when I once I write them down. So I think it stays with me.
3: Uh, do you have a specific place that you write from? Like, do you have an office that you write from or you kind of go to a cafe or are you a write from anywhere kind of person?
1: Isaac, like, you know, this. You've seen me around. (laughs) Okay. Well, I haven't in a while because I've been away so much. But when I was writing Little Astronaut, I wrote part of it standing (laughs) at Stumptown, like standing in that front area at Stumptown at one of those standing tables. But I also wrote much of it at Rucola. So, yeah, I have a very hard time writing from home. I actually, during the pandemic, I created a whole, like, desk environment that was I, wonderful. I'm speaking to you
3: for mine right now.
1: See, I couldn't get anything done at my in my desk environment. It just yeah. couldn't happen for me. I needed to be out in the middle of somewhere where I was invisible, even if it's just a park bench or anything or stoop. I don't like writing at a desk very much. Hmm. It's, not, it's not for me.
3: <laughs> and... uh Do you have any rituals you do before you start writing to kind of be like, I'm now in writing
1: mode? I try to sort of give myself what I would call a diet of particular things to listen to, particular things to read, so that sort of the osmosis you were talking about kind of takes over, whether it's a Mm. feeling or something I'm interested in, in learning about. Lots of, you know, it could be nonfiction if I'm writing about extinction or something like that. I'll heavy up on the extinction books. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I like to sort of be in a headspace of, you know, I'll have like a playlist that I listen to. And uh, sometimes the playlist will include poets reading work and, you know, Whitman. And, you know, I get into a Whitman phases a lot. And that really gets just gets me going. It just sort of puts me in a writing mode. Mm. So for Little Astronaut, I had a really specific writing process, which is Mike was on stage performing the new one, and in the middle of the show, all these toys fall all around him, and also my poetry notebooks fall. And so I had to make these props for Mike to use on stage. I had to make three Jenny poetry notebooks. Mm. And so he's like, make them look realistic. So I started writing in them, but then he took them and he like they f- and they fell from the ceiling eight shows a week and then i would beg him to like bring them back to me so i could keep writing in them so a lot of the poems from little astronaut were written in those notebooks just like i'd have them for his day off on monday i would like write in them and then they would fall from the ceiling eight times a week and then he'd bring them back to me and i would like write in them and then so i'd say like the seeds for about 80% of the book are in those notebooks
3: Oh, wow. Uh, we yeah. should probably clarify for those who don't know that both yeah. um, Little Astronaut, your most recent collection of poems, and the new one, which was both a, a show written and performed by Mike and a book that the two of you authored together, are about your pregnancy and the birth and early days of parenting your daughter, Una. And, uh That is a fascinating origin story for a book of... I don't think... You might be the first uh, person I've interviewed for this show where the origin of the work is uh, chunks of it had to fall from the ceiling eight eight times a week. But...
1: um, No, it's a really strange process. Um, I was going to tell you that the other seeds of the book were my friend Ilya Kaminsky, the poet. Um, He, When I first had Una, I was like in the first couple of months, I wasn't getting any writing done. And he was like, write an email to yourself every day, just anything you can think of, and a thought, a observation, a rant, whatever it is, a color. And then by the end of two months, you'll have seeds for a book. And that also ended up being the seeds for
3: Oh, the that's wild. Yeah, because I was wondering, because, you know, obviously the poems feel extremely well-crafted, right? But there's also an immediacy to them. Like sometimes it feels... Emotionally, it has this charge of like you've just finished breastfeeding, you've put the kid <laughs> down, you've run to the desk and you've written the thing that we just read and I know a lot of craft actually happens between those two things, but that's interesting that it's actually based on things that may have happened days, weeks, months earlier. Um, how do you get yourself back into the the headspace or is it easy for you? you know you're reading the email and suddenly you're like, oh God, I remember this moment I can channel it now
1: well you know i wrote this the book over the course of about 6 years and so i wrote them wow. in different in different chunks oh i'm a slow one <laughs> i'm a pretty slow writer i have you know i have a book i finished in 2015 that i just made some changes on you know <laughs> so i'm pretty slow in my process and little astronaut probably had three or four major writing moments where I like outputted about you know 15 or 20 poems and so the first 20 or so came easy and then the next batch um it got harder and harder as I got farther away from it because my daughter's seven now and so when I was writing the last batch of poems she was about five or six Mm -hmm. and it was hard to get into the headspace the best way for me to get into the headspace was actually to read what I had already done the book as it was and hear what the book needed what it was missing what could sort of make some of the themes more connected where I could take them that I haven't already taken them and so that was sort of the final step and so that was less immediate but the first batch of poems were very immediate and I was really like thankful to have those moments that I wrote while they were happening because like one of the things I think is really fun about poetry is that you can do that you can kind of get away with just saying, like, this is happening right now. And that you know, sort of jump out to the reader and say, by the way, this is happening right now. There are stakes here.
3: So I find that, like, when I'm at the beginning of a big project, whatever it is, like, I often have to set some kind of set of rules for myself. I mean, they're they're pretty arbitrary. Yeah. But I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, for the method, it was like. I only want to quote primary sources in the book. Like I want it to feel like it's the people I want it to be in three acts, you know, just like little things like that. Cause (laughs) otherwise choice paralysis sets in, right. Cause on the blank page, it's like you could literally do anything. Yes. Do you do that? Is that part of your process? And and if so, what were your rules for little astronaut?
1: I do that. I love rules. And I think that they're all like in my own head and nobody could, possibly figure out what they are um, sometimes they're even just rules with sound or rhythms or I don't know, something I'm playing with internally in poems or structurally for Little Astronaut in particular I sort of have a different, two different processes one is I just like, I call the expansion process where I'm just like expanding in every direction, it's wild it's unwieldy, it's like 500 pages of craziness and then I sit down as like a sober person (laughs) who looks through it and says this works this doesn't work this works Mm -hmm. it's almost like I didn't write it and I'm so detached from it I'm like oh that's crazy that I wrote that no memory of writing these things but um and so then so that person kind the sort of pragmatic person comes in and sort of sees what's useful and then from there I kind of assess like it looks like what I have going on or this thread and this thread and this thread how can I do a batch of poems that musically are like this and a batch of poems that work musically more meditatively. They have more space. How can I do some sort of ranty kind of loudish poems that are a little bit like this one and sort of weave those together and try to Mm -hmm. make some kind of a a pattern or tapestry with them. So I, I really enjoy work that can pull that off so i'm always trying to pull that off right make it more musical make it more um, of a pattern that you can depend on but then something also is a little out of place or strange and within that pattern
2: we'll be back with more of isaac's conversation with Jay Hopestein. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at, working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Jay hope
3: so, Little Astronaut is, of course, very personal. It's highly autobiographical, and it's very honest about all sorts of aspects of your life, from you know fights you and Mike are having to your sex life or the the physical and, um, and emotional complexities of being a new mother. Um, how do you decide what you're going to share with the world and what you're not?
1: Oh my gosh! Did I put all that in there? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just try not to think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but Mike is an autobiographical writer. Right. And part of our marriage vows, like when it was just us alone in bed talking about getting married, was that I had to agree that he could write about our lives. <laughs> and and he had to agree that I had I could participate in that process so that I felt okay about it. Mm-hmm. So in that process, over the years, we've learned to be as honest as we can, I think, but also save something just for us. And so we're always saving something that's just for us, which I think is really important. But um, this is my first autobiographical piece. Most of my work is really far out and not related to my life at all, though I could sneak things in but, and disguise things, but they, they don't come off as me talking about my life. Um, but I have worked with Mike a lot over the years, so I think that when I had a kid and when my friend Ilya had suggested just write observations about – so when Ilya said, like, write to yourself every day, I was like, I'll do that, but there's no way I'm writing a book about right. parent or mother. <laughs> like, that's not happening. I'm in the middle of something totally different that's really far out, And but it came really naturally. I guess I just was sort of – had a lot to express in the moment. And your original question was, how do I decide what not to say? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said all that stuff. <laughs> no,
3: no well, I mean, I think the work benefits from and I don't think there's any problem with it. Well, you know, one of the major motifs of Little Astronomy, it's right there in the title, outer space, you know, yeah. the, the how we relate to the world, how we relate to other planets. Uh, you compare yourself to Kepler at one point, to Copernicus at another. and I, Was that motif there from the beginning did that just sort of develop at some and then you went back and threaded it through or you know how did that erupt into the book
1: well i started with the first poem little astronaut which is sort of like this very short poem that was in mike's show and it compares a baby to being an astronaut and so i wrote most of the space poems in the book as the very last batch of poems. So you saw right through that, Isaac. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was
3: really curious. I really had no idea. I was like, oh, I wonder how this developed as a theme.
1: (laughs) I, I had a couple of them there from the beginning. But then when I looked at the book before I wrote my final batch of about 10 poems or so, when I read the book, what I felt like it wanted was to explore that theme a little bit more and explore that metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote some relationship poems about Mike and I and that have some space themes in them and compare us to Voyager 2 and Voyager 1, which are uh, have left their heliosphere. And then I explored just even, you know, the thing of like taking your child and holding them up to the ceiling and having them sort of be like a little astronaut up in the air and – them drooling down on you and that kind of imagery, Um, I wanted to take that and write, I wrote a space poem about that too. Um, And so I I definitely wanted to tighten that up at the end. So I bet the, I think the last 10 poems or so that I wrote have a lot of imagery like that in it, that I felt like the book was missing and really needed.
3: Another format you return to a bunch that I really enjoy is the, the toasts. You know, um, they're not always overtly called toasts, but the first one appears, um, the, a toast to a third arm, which I'll just read so that the, a little bit to the stranger who offers to hold a door for me, no need. I walk backwards into doors to inspire a third arm. And then the next stanza is to a different group of people, to a different group of people. And that's a thing that's going on throughout the collection is you're toasting people. You're, you're saying, you know, to my daughter, this, um, yeah, I found that so pleasurable. I'm just wondering, did you just <laughs> stumble upon that one day and were like, oh, this is cool. I got to do this as much as possible.
1: I think that I had some poems that were like full, like when I looked back in my, the very seeds that I had written when they were happening – They were all, like, these rants, like, people are coming up to me and doing this. This person's doing this. And instead of, like, just writing a full rant, I was, like, wanting to thank them for doing that and sort of be Mm -hmm. more thankful of, like, people handing me napkins on the street because I'm, like, look like I could use a napkin and stuff like that. But I actually ended up composing those poems from those seeds. I composed those while I was doing the shows with Mike. So those are the, the toast poems are the ones that I wrote in that time period that I would like get up on stage and read.
3: Well, oh, that's great because they do have a certain performed quality because, of course, you perform yeah. a toast, right? You know, yeah. here's to the bride yeah. or whatever. And so that, that's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, there's one that's – it used to be called A Toast to My Husband, but now it's called We Learn to Dance. But um, I used to read that one on stage. And then there was a point where Jack Antonoff, the musician – and Mike and I would sing that poem. And then Mike, the chorus would be like this song that Mike used to sing to Una, like intersplaced in my poem. And it was just really far out, kind of crazy, like so far out of my usual experience, which is just sitting with my computer and writing like little poems on my computer. Um, but yeah, that was super fun. And I think that a, lot, that a lot of the musicality came from just performing those on stage.
3: So you have the poems you're starting to realize this is a thematically linked collection this is a book length collection of you know the poems are going to fit together whether it's on the line the page or the whole whole thing how do you start to think about arranging them, the sequence they go in? You know, the book is in five parts. How do you figure out which goes in which part and why? And Because it's not chronological, for example, there. I've noticed there's one poem where she's three and then another one where, you know, we're back to early days and things like that. So I'm just curious about how yeah. you start to arrange it into a book that has a arc or a shape or what have you, given that it's not a narrative shape necessarily.
1: The way I look at the current structure of this book is... There's a little prologue of when I'm pregnant called Maternity Pants. That's the prologue. And then it goes into when Una's an infant in the beginning. And then there's Voyager when she's sort of mobile. And then at some point I have a flashback to when I'm pregnant again, when I had a lot of um, issues going on when I was pregnant. But within that, I flash forward to being with her. So I might have... um, a poem on one page called Magic Trick, which is about how my placenta was bleeding and sort of what I was going through at that point and not so sure the pregnancy was going to work out. And then on the other page facing it, I'll have a poem about how I can't get out of bed and Una waves a magic wand over me and says, Wish magic, get out of bed. And you know, and sort of playing with putting those together so I in this particular book, for me, what became important was poems that were in spreads with each other, so that when you're when you're turning the page, the poems that you see that are within a spread facing each other, that they are almost illustrations for each other. Because mm. originally this was going to be an illustrated book, and it was laid out, and I had like put illustration here, but the illustrator couldn't get it. We couldn't figure out schedules. And so I had to rearrange the book. And then what happened was I began to think of, you know, a poem about tethering. It's called Tethering, about how Mike and I are connected. And then what's facing that is a poem about Una taking toilet paper and like tethering our house with it. And so I started to think about the poems being connected in this way and the way the pages turn became very important to me and what was on a centerfold like facing each other what was in the spreads and so I don't always work that way but that was just particular for this book I also think that if you gave me another opportunity to edit I would always change something right (laughs) so I think I'm a big editor so every time I look at something of mine I'll change it and I'm sure anyone who's ever worked with me and tried to print anything for me knows this (laughs) (laughs) and tries not to show me anything
3: (laughs) at some point it's got to you got to be comfortable with it being taken away from you and and put into the world you know how did you do that well I guess with this at some point your editor must have been
1: like okay it's done you can't change it yeah yeah it was a deadline otherwise I would still be going and that's I don't I haven't published a lot of my books for that reason so I have like one book that's been done since 2015 that I haven't published that I just added some stuff to but yeah I don't know that book's probably more than ready to be published already and i could change that all day long so someone should take it from me if anybody's listening please take it from me
3: <laughs> <laughs> whether you publish it or not just take it away just take, take, it, take away. it away
1: just get it <laughs> off my computer i have like versions of it since like 2007 or 6 or something
3: <laughs> so i've heard poets complain before about getting this question so i was a little sheepish about asking it, but i'm gonna go ahead and ask whatever we throw caution to the wind um, here at working uh,
1: I'm not someone who complains about things that poets would complain about.
3: Okay, great. Good, good. How do you decide where the line break goes? That seems to me like the most basic question about poetry. And I I just, you know, lots of people seem very confused by it. So how do you figure out where the line break should go?
1: Okay, I love line breaks. I love line break decisions. I don't I couldn't possibly explain how to decide that. I, I think every poet has their own way of doing it but i think it's one of the most exciting things about writing poems it helps you i mean it helps me find my rhythm um sometimes you want to break where you need a breath Mm -hmm. sometimes you want to break in a place that you shouldn't or for some word play but i mean sometimes you just want to break in a way to like enjam a thought and and make it so it sort of goes against where you want to automatically breathe or automatically take a pause. Um, I change my line break sometimes after I read my poems out loud. And I sometimes make them more expected after I read them out loud because sometimes I play with them too much and they're they're less expected than the average reader would want them to be. Mm -hmm. But then when I started reading them out loud, I was like, these are hard for me to read out loud. <laughs> like I need to break here. <laughs> I can't right. breathe if I don't break here. So, um, so I mean, everyone has a different way of doing it, but it's so fun to play with line breaks. I mean, I could do it all day. I wish I just had like tons of material and I just like could play with line breaks all day.
3: And then occasionally there's a few things in the in the book. They're they're mostly letters to Una that are Mm -hmm. prose poems or don't have traditional line breaks or whatever. Was that is that painful for you? Were you like, I want the I should have put line breaks in here. This is so hard. It's a paragraph. Oh my god.
1: Yeah, actually there's a poem in there, A dear Una it's called like Dear Una Johann Sebastian Bach or something like that and it's just like a block of text and it just goes and I actually made an Instagram video of it recently and I was trying to read it and I was like I'm so mad at myself I should have made that like I should have put more space in that I'm like people would enjoy this with more space because right now it's just like all on top of itself Mm -hmm. but I like to put my stuff on top of itself and I think that Definitely lends kind of uh, intensity of like this is just being thrown out onto the page versus like this is going to like fall on the page in this such a way as to let you breathe and you can't really breathe in some of those poems.
3: Well, there's a way in which the the intensity of that, you know, that contrast is really powerful because suddenly you're just being overwhelmed by this language, you know, and it feels like you're the writer being overwhelmed by it and then the readers being overwhelmed by it. There's almost something mimetic about it.
1: That's right. And it's funny. So, I almost feel like when I was reading that particular poem, I was sort of feeling like I wanted more air in it and to me that's almost like doing a cover of the poem or something, like a more of a ballad cover instead of like a hardcore jam punk right. version of the poem, but I think both are cool. Like I think, well, what does it look like one way? What does it look like the other way? Like I I like both versions of it. And I would be like if I had to reprint this book, I would probably change that poem and make it put some air into it whereas there's another poem where I'm like really complaining about Mike and I would just keep that as like a full block of text that's just like right in your face because that's the purpose of that poem
3: it it sounds like you want to remix part of your poetry collection (laughs) get get a get another producer in to turn the bass up and
1: (laughs) exactly that would be so fun
3: Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today to talk to us about your process.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Isaac.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions
4: Supply.
2: That was such a fascinating conversation and Isaac you've worn a lot of different hats over the course of your life thus far and I wanted to know if you've ever experienced the kind of transition that Jenny talks about just totally throwing everything out and going into a totally different career.
3: I mean, I thought I was doing that and then Uh it didn't work out that way. So when (laughs) I went to grad school for writing, I had just sort of made up my mind that I was done with New York City and I was done with theater. I was going to go to Minneapolis. I was going to go study writing full time. You know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, that Simpsons episode where Homer gets the job at the bowling alley and then he like burns the bridge on his way out from the (laughs) nuclear plant after resigning. That's for employing me for eight years. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, the day after I accepted a position at the University of Minnesota, I got offered the best gig of my directing career to date Mm. back in New York City for uh, a year and a half from then. And so... Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in and I had to figure out how to balance doing theater and writing and studying and being in Minneapolis and being in New York and all that stuff. I, I really had to figure out how to do both of those things. And at the end of it, I realized I did, in fact, still want to do theater every now and then. Mm-hmm. And I did probably want to move back to New York when I was done.
2: As someone who knows you, I'm like, wow, Isaac, not in New York. That's wild. <laughs> um but I loved what Jenny had to say about reading her work out loud. You've mentioned in the conversation that you read your own work out loud as well, but not to other people. Have you ever read it to other people? And when did you start reading your work out loud and why?
3: I don't really read out loud like to other people, although I do know that Jonathan Lethem does. He told mm-hmm. me this, that when he finishes a book... At some point in the writing process of, like, revising it, he will read the entire book out loud to, like, his partner or to a small group of friends or whatever over a series of nights. I don't do that. But I do read my work out loud whenever I finish a major draft of anything. I I, I read it out loud. And that's true for books or for any kind of article I spent a lot of time on. Something that Mm -hmm. it's like... I don't know that that, like I get the someone's died and I get the assignment at 10 a.m. and it's due at 2 p.m. I probably won't take the time to read it out loud. But um, in terms of. Uh, I, I did used to go and do readings that weren't connected to book events though mm-hmm. because as you may have noticed I am an extrovert and have a certain <laughs> joy of performing for other people and when I was in graduate school like storytelling was a big thing you know it's not really as big anymore but like the moth was huge and there yeah. were a lot of kind of copycat moth shows all over New York City I never did the moth because you can't actually bring writing on stage with you when you do it mm-hmm. um but a series that would allow you to read from notes or from a piece of paper, I would do those. And that was a lot of fun because you learn how to tell a joke in a way that'll get an audience to laugh. You learn a lot about what your persona on the page needs to be to connect to people. Um, I don't do it as much anymore because I rarely write about my own life now. And a lot of that's, you know, that's all kind of autobiographical, Um, but they were a lot of fun and I enjoyed them. And I highly recommend that writers get their work in front of a crowd just to see what happens, because I just think you'll learn a lot about it while you're writing.
2: Yeah, it's a very, very different experience. That's it. I can't imagine reading more than like 500 words out loud to somebody. That's such a huge time commitment. I know. I know. Well, Jonathan,
3: I do know when he was doing Chronic City, he, um, for each event on the book tour, just read the book in order. So it was just like whatever was the, And then the final night of the tour, he read as much of the book as he had not gotten through on the rest of the tour. But Chronic City is like a long book and it was yeah. like an eight hour reading, his final, oh, his final event. Oh, no was,
2: thank you. Yeah, very <laughs>
3: exhausting for him.
2: I also really enjoyed hearing Jenny talk about the writers that she admired and wanted to emulate at the beginning of career. And I wanted to turn that question around on you to ask if you had similar role models and what drew you to them in particular.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think, Everyone who's starting out in a creative endeavor is imitating their heroes, whether Mm -hmm. they realize it or not. So it's actually just helpful to realize you're doing that and then admit it and then you can do it in a systematic way. Uh, I've talked a lot on this show about um, actually copying out by hand the sentences that writers I admired wrote and then learning how the sentences worked. That was really helpful. But yeah, so... When I was starting out, when I went to graduate school, you know, the thing that drew me to nonfiction because I was primarily a reader of fiction was essay collections by novelists. I really loved, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, David Foster Wallace's two collections were out. Jonathan Lethem's first collection was out. His second one came out while I was in graduate school. Uh Zadie Smith's first collection of essays is actually, I think, her best book. I think it's better than her novels. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the things I actually needed to learn how to do in grad school was not write like that because,
2: mm-hmm.
3: so for example, a lot of those writers are writing essays about their own aesthetic formation mm-hmm.
2: as they grow up,
3: right? No one wants to read about that from a nobody. The reason why you care <laughs> about the aesthetic formation of David Foster Wallace is because he's David Foster Wallace. So right. I had to learn how to write like other stuff, you yeah. know, but, 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 but certainly the writing style was, was something I tried to crib whenever I could.
2: That's fascinating. And I, I think, I hope something that we sort of come back to on the podcast, because the idea of like emulating somebody versus knowing what not to emulate or what yeah, isn't totally. helpful to you is a pretty good lesson. Yeah. But for now, to get back to uh, your conversation with Jenny, you mentioned that you set rules for yourself while you were writing the method. And I wanted to know if you always set rules for yourself while writing or if it felt more necessary here, given that it's such a bigger project and how you decide what rules you want to set, and then when to bend the rules, if at all. Yeah.
3: Well, the nice thing about setting the rules is that you can break them, right? Like, but you True. have to like sort of forget that you're you're the one who came up with the rules, so that you feel some pressure not to break it whenever it's convenient. Uh-huh. I just I just think it's you know this is actually comes from directing um, and figuring out kind of what the conceptual rules of a production are. I just mm-hmm. think it's really useful because once you have the box. You can be more creative within that box, you know? But I also think like most of what you and I do, Karen, we've set rules, even if we don't realize it, like the angle that you commit to in a pitch with an editor is a rule. Your deadline is a rule. The word Mm -hmm. count is a rule. So sometimes it's just something as simple as that. It's like really just to get yourself out of choice paralysis and to just figure out what the boundaries are so that you can do as much as possible within those boundaries.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I guess it's, it's sort of like writing an outline for yourself. Like you have quote unquote rules that you've established, but it's just to help you figure out how to keep moving forward. Yeah, totally. Sort of speaking of rules and structure, I loved hearing Jenny talk about laying out the book because I think that's not something that we, I don't know, think about as much when we think about publishing. Did you have much of a say in how your book was laid out? And if so, what were your considerations as to what was important to you?
3: My big consideration was just that I liked the font.
2: (laughs) You know, it's like the readers... What what font? I
3: actually don't remember the name of the font, but um, it's very lovely. It's very elegant. It reads... Fun but serious nonfiction, um, Love that. but you know, like prose nonfiction, it's like there's not that much to discuss in terms of the the layout. And I liked what they came up with, and so we went ahead and, and went with that. Mm-hmm. The one point of debate was about the photo insert. I did not want to oh. do a photo insert. The photo insert is like those six glossy pages that have yeah. like photos of the people in the book because. I don't read them when I read nonfiction books. I always uh-huh. skip them. I was like, fuck that. Who cares? Um, and and my editor was like, are you nuts? Readers love that. We've actually, you know, there's market research that shows that people will buy the book because <laughs> of what's in the, the photo insert. You have to have the photo insert. And wow. I was like, oh, OK, well, then I guess I'll have a photo Well,
2: insert. if you say so. Yeah. All right.
3: But you, uh-huh. I have to imagine with your book, there must have been tons of layout considerations.
2: Yeah, um, although I was really, really lucky. All the design work was taken care of by the team at Little White Lies and they did a really, really gorgeous job um, with they do good the layouts work. of the book. They really Their do. Their ship looks great. But the main part of the book that I had the most say on was the cover of it um, because it, it, that was the only part of the design book that at least I was involved in several iterations of where I was sort of like, oh, like I wish X wasn't present, I wish X was bigger, and we had it was more like this. Um, but it was really fun. And it's also, I feel like I actually received my first hard copies of the book the other day in the mail and looking did you through cry? it. No, but I can't. I kind of went numb for like the rest of the day.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's a really powerful <laughs> moment, isn't
2: it? Yeah. But when I was looking at it, I feel like I wasn't too like, oh, what did I do? My book's so stupid. Like in part because there was such a big component of it that other people did, you know, where it's like their design work is so beautiful that I don't worry about my writing as much, if that makes sense.
3: No, I meant cry because you're just so moved by like, oh, I made yeah. this thing and it's in the world. Not because yeah. it was bad. Your writing's not bad. It's going to be good. Cool. Come on.
2: thank you. My uh, reminder that my book is out November 22nd. It's called Bong Distance ho Distant Cinema. It's out from Aprons and Little White Lies.
3: <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed book promotion
2: code. <laughs> Actually, that is the last question that I had for you. Um, So listeners, we really hope that you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
3: Thanks to J. Hope Stein and to our producer Cameron Drews, who makes our recordings sound like poetry. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with romance novelist Harper Bliss. Until then, get back to work.